Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. My guest today is Michael Pento of Pento Portfolio Strategies and some deep forecast today. I asked him what we're going to do about the $2 trillion deficit, and his response was, it's going to become $6 trillion before we're done. So a little teaser of what we get into today. You're going to like this one. Quick announcement before we jump in. On November 30th, I am hosting a live online private event called Crisis and Chaos, the Changing World Order. And my guest roster is absolutely mind-blowing. I'm going to be joined by a handful of U.S. presidential advisors, uh, former leaders within the Secretary of Defense, Navy SEAL veterans, terrorism experts, mercenary army leaders, and a former Supreme Commander of NATO to discuss the shifting geopolitical order. This is without question the biggest event I've ever been a part of. Check out crisisandchaosevent.com. There's a link beneath this piece of content. I'd love to see you there. But here is Michael Penso. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Michael Pento. Michael, welcome back to the show. It's great to chat with you. Always good to be on with you, Jay. Yeah, let's start here. I had a, I had a chat with a buddy yesterday who recently de-risked his portfolio. He went to cash like maybe a month ago, you know, uh, was paying attention to a lot of macro, didn't like what he was hearing, didn't like what he was seeing, decided it was time to get out of the market. I spoke to him yesterday. Most of his positions are up 30% since then. He feels like he's made a massive <laughs> mistake. So what would you, what would you, how would you counsel this individual right now in this scenario? What the heck is up 30% in a month? I, 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 I don't, I don't know what's up 30% in a month, but I'd love to know if, if you can tell me, but um, well, I, you know, I kind of empathize with him getting out of the market um, to a great extent. Um, I, I think he should have gotten out in late 2021 because that's when the bear market peaked, you know, with all the hysteria, of the uh, AI craze, and you could throw in maybe the end of the Fed rate hikes, because when the Fed stops hiking rates, uh, don't you know the market just goes to the moon? There's no more problems when the Fed stops hiking rates. I mean, historically, that's complete. I, I'm, I don't curse. I try not to. But yes, okay, okay. It is it, horse hockey, okay? The, the last rate hike, heading into the Great Recession, the Great Global Meltdown, when stocks dropped by over 50%, the last rate hike was in 2006. And the first rate reduction was September of 2007. Now, Jay, was September of 2007 a really great time to buy stocks and to go you know, take the green light that the market and the economy is going to boom? Absolutely not. So the Fed has, in my opinion, stopped hiking interest rates perhaps at five and a quarter to five and a half percent. But let's not forget that they were at, in a real sense, a negative 8% real Fed funds rate in 2022. We're now at a positive 2% plus as we record this interview. So excuse me. So a lot of damage has been done, has been done. And as these debts refinance and roll over, you're going to see a lot of carnage to the economy and to the stock market. Just be a little patient, but I just wanted just to wrap up that question with a bow. 
The S&P 500 is down 6% despite all of the BS you hear about the Fed being done. It's down 6% from the cycle peak. I do I do business cycle uh, measurements, and that's how I manage money. I look at the second derivative of inflation and growth, and that informs me where to invest along a five-sector spectrum between deflation and, and hyperinflation. If I know where we're headed and we know where we are and where we're heading, I'll know best where to invest your money. And you are down 6% in the S&P 500, and that's the best of all the metrics. You look at the Russell 2000, it's down huge. If you're down, you're down in the banking sector. Uh, you know, across the board, it's been carnage since the cycle peaked in November of 2021. Okay. And I had to fact check myself there because you threw me off and I found one. I found one stock, DoorDash. It's up 30% in uh, last well, couple of Yeah, Jake. Jay, if he had 100% of his portfolio in DoorDash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that's what he had, but okay, okay. So thank you for that context. So what are you paying attention to right now then, Michael? What's what's catching your eye that you think the public is misunderstanding in macro? Well, I think they're listening to CNBS with the volume on. That's, I think, the first mistake is. Okay. Um, you're hearing um, some of those guys that uh, appear telling you that it's an all clear signal to buy stocks and the economy is going to boom now Yeah, just because the the Fed stopped hiking rates. I mean, I'm looking at things like the labor market. So the labor market, in my opinion, is starting to crack. If you look okay. at job cut layoff announcements, by the way, when I say things, I, I don't just, I never just give my opinion on something without having it substantiated by some facts. So let's just look at this. So job pl planned layoff announcements are up 198% from last year. That's a fact. Now, let's just take a look at um, more evidence that the labor market is starting to crack because people say, oh, the consumer is fully employed and he's getting uh, raises. So, you know, the inflation is no longer a problem. We can get into that, too. I think we have 40 minutes. So let's 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 try to get below the sound bites that you hear on the mainstream financial media. So um, that there's two surveys when it comes to unemployment, the non-farm payroll report. There's the establishment survey and there's the household survey. Well, the establishment survey showed 150,000 net new jobs created, but what leads the establishment survey is something called the household survey. I'm sure you're aware of it. In that survey, there was 348,000 jobs lost in October, cut in October. And what I find most shocking is that, and people hardly ever talk about this, but there's something called the index of aggregate hours work which is just an index of the entire labor impulse into the economy. So for instance, if one job, one person has a job and they work 12 hours a day, yeah, and then that person gets fired and get has to take two jobs that are six hours each, you have an increase of 100% in the number of jobs created. Yeah. But, but the... The impulse of labor hours, productivity in the economy is the same. And the income from that, you know, the Walmart greeter and the Dunkin' Donuts guy who stands in line in the rain to take your order, that doesn't supplant the income he was making from, you know, working in Wall Street or, you know, some big bank. So, yep. or in the manufacturing sector. So th those are things you should understand um, that the labor market, in my and the way I look at it, initial claims rising, household survey, layoff announcements, 
that tells me that the, the beginnings of the labor market are starting to crack. Yeah, that's an important metric and one that actually David Rosenberg focuses on a lot whenever I have him on. It's not the jobs number, it's the work week. And he looks at the the hourly work week, right? Because it, companies you know, will- smart Canadian. You know, you get you just interview people from the United States and they don't talk about the index of aggregate hours worked. But Rosie, I, one of the few people I respect on Wall Street, fellow Canadian, he nails it. Absolutely. Very, very interesting. And I heard you on a recent audio file that you sent me <laughs> talking about job cuts at Mirsk. And um, I, I thought it was telling because if you look at you know a company like this, one of the world's largest shipping organizations, and I recall you mentioned they were planning something like 3,500 job cuts. You know, it seems like a leading indicator, right? This is one of the backbone industries. And so if the company that's moving the things we need is looking at their near and midterm forecasts and saying, we're going to shed 3,500 people. It tells you a lot about the trickle-down effects of that. So do I have those numbers right? And what does that marker tell you, Michael? Well, it's not only that I think you do have those numbers right, um, but it's not only that, but their revenue is down and earnings are down like 94% year over year. Like the earnings are just getting crushed. At this Bellwether company, it's one of the largest shipping companies on the planet. They're moving freight around the planet. And, you know, to me, um, Jay, it's just emblematic of what's happening with the level of borrowing costs. So don't forget, back in March of 2022, borrowing costs were still zero. Now, they yeah. were, they were, borrowing costs were 1% or less for 11 of the 14 years between 2008 and 2022. Now, just don't sit there and tell me. And I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about the mainstream financial media. Don't sit there and tell me that when you take borrowing costs to z near zero for the first time in U.S. history. In fact, this was a global phenomenon. Because we're talking about Mayers too. Globally, there was $17 trillion of negative yielding debt. 17 at the peak, at the apex. So don't tell me there weren't any imbalances. <laughs> Economic imbalances created. Don't tell me that people didn't take out a lot of debt, governments included, corporates included, individuals, families included, when money was free for 11 out of 14 years. But now we see it's starting to change. It's changed. We've gone from, as I said, minus 8% on a real Fed funds rate to a positive 2%. Not only that, not only do you have the monetary impulse that is gone, that that uh, QE phenomenon is gone into and morphed into Q QT. And we'll talk about this reverse repo facility in a second, because I just remembered I want to talk about that, about the chaos in the bond market. But you also have the fiscal side. If you notice what's going on in DC, there's not a lot of appetite for huge spending packages right now. It's dysfunction in DC. Not only that, but you see a lot of the stuff that we did, the, the, the crazy stuff we did, which is um, $6 trillion of fiscal stimulus, four and a half of it monetized by the Federal Reserve. But now the COVID mortgage forbearance programs like the FHA insured mortgages and reverse mortgages, mm -hmm. that forbearance is going to end November 30th of this year. You got to pay your mortgage now. 17% of all mortgages are FHA insured. These people haven't had to pay a mortgage since early 2020. Jay, do you think that might perhaps affect 
consumption, which is 70% of G- GDP. 17%? Seven, 70%. Okay. Uh, consumption is 70, 70% yeah. of GDP. Yeah. 17% of all mortgages are FHA insured right now, which is a lot yeah. higher than they used to be. That's you know, mind blowing. Yeah. We didn't have. We don't have any zero percent down loans. We've got three percent down loans. You know. Yeah. 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 So student loan payments sort of resume September first. I have my doubts about how many people are really paying because you don't get your. You know, you don't get dinged on your credit score like you should. But that supposedly that's the case. But here's here's a big one. And uh, Danielle D. Martino Booth is is really in the vanguard on this on this front. The Employee Retention Credit Program, and this gave tax cut tax credits, so you're getting people money back, of $28,000 per employee. That is over. September 14th, the door closed on that. So you have three big fiscal stimuli that are now gone. And you're adding that to the to what's happening with banks. Now, if you look at the SLU survey, which is the Senior Loan Officer's Opinion Survey, up virtually across the board, businesses are not getting access to credit in the same degree they were in the Q3 as they were in Q2. So banks are tightening lending standards to corporations and individuals across the board. And the demand for that credit is attenuating as well. This is all a slow, Jay, this is why I get, I get, I have to talk some FOMO people. You know, I have a, almost a, 900 accounts at Penta Portfolio Strategies and a small percent of them, about 5% of them, they get nervous, like, oh, oh my gosh, is the is the economy going to, you know, they listen to CNBS and like, oh my God, the economy is going to boom and, you know, the Powell stopped raising interest rates. And uh, that means that the, the stock market is going to take off. I mean, nothing can be further, further from the truth. This is a slow moving train wreck. And I think the train wreck becomes a salient factor, completely manifest as in recession, in 2024, and I think the early part of 2024. And why do I obsess about a recession? Is this I have a recession uh, uh, obsession? Is it a phobia of mine? No. Recessions are where you see the start of a recession when the NBER declares that there's a recession that began, that the stock market usually plunges anywhere between 30 and 60%, 32 to 57 to be exact. That's the average, you know, the that's that's the that's the uh, spectrum of decline. Um, in in recessions since the Great Depression. Now, I think Q2 GDP growth was like 4.9%. So we're not in a recession yet, technically. There's just no chance that's happening. So the earliest you can be in a recession, assuming Q3 and Q4 are, or I'm sorry, Q3 was 4.9%. So as soon as you can be in a recession is Q the end of Q1 2024. That's the earliest the NBER can declare a recession. And it's from that point that you see the decline in the major averages of between 32 and 57%. That's the, that's the band. So I don't want any part of that for, my, for, my, for myself or for my clients. And we're not going to be. In fact, we have a plan to protect and profit during this next recession. And then we can have all of that capital to deploy at much better fairer asset at asset price levels. Okay. So, you, you know, you're painting a pretty bleak picture, uh, three major subsidy programs coming to an end or just recently came to an end. 
lending for small businesses, medium-sized businesses as well, largely grinding to a halt. Um, you touched on the real estate, the call it the uh, the residential real estate market a little bit. I didn't realize the number of mortgage forgiveness was that high, seventeen percent, and that's that in FHA. In, in FHA, not that not is, in FHA. It's hot. It's a high. It's a high. It's a lot. Of, it's a there's a lot of people out there who haven't made a mortgage payment since two thousand and twenty, since March of two thousand and twenty. That's yeah. coming. That's all coming due. You know, similar scenario in Canada, people have been able to defer their payments and extend their amortization rates up to like 70, 80, and even 90 year terms temporarily, temporarily. Now, Bank of Canada is now clamping down on this and it's a very similar scenario unfolding up here. Um, you, you touched on the bond market. So what do you want to focus on there? Uh, and, you know, what do you think about the traditional 60-40 portfolio today, Michael? What are your thoughts? Well, before we go there, can I just, can I, just I want to just wrap a bow up on what we just, what you just mentioned. Okay. What, I, I mean, I didn't know about I didn't know about what you just said about the Bank of Canada, but unless they own, I mean, somebody owns all this debt, right, Jay? I mean, banks are in big trouble. Banks apparently, banks either the Central Bank of Canada or or the Federal Reserve or just regular banks are in big trouble. Yeah. Fifty four percent, fifty four percent of all U.S. mortgages have a rate between two and a half and four percent. Okay. That's that's the that's the income. The banks' assets are the the mortgages they hold. Yeah, now, yeah. The right. rate the the rate the rate that rate two and a half to four to four percent, fifty four percent. So that that is well below their funding costs. So the T bill is, is over five percent right now. So that, there's there's a, there's an inherent intrinsic run on the banking system right now. Heading out of the you know deposits coming out of the banking system and running into treasuries. That's a huge problem for the banking system. Now, um, who owns all these mortgage-backed securities? Well, the financial industry does. And those th these assets are trading at 70 cents on the dollar. Jay, this is this is just a function of the rise in interest rates. This is not a function of a deteriorating economy. You haven't seen that yet. So remember, you know the mortgage-backed securities were, were the nucleus of the problem in the in the global financial crisis. It was twofold. It was it was not just rising interest rates that put these assets under underwater. It was the fact that no one was paying their mortgage. <laughs> they couldn't pay their mortgage. Well, twenty-five percent of homes are owned by investors. That's a record high. That's, that 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 is twenty one quarter of all. Homes, single family homes in the United States are owned by an investor. And when you rent that out, I mean, when your home is going up in value, the, the, the home price is going up in value and you're raising rents because you can, and you have a renter who's paying you a very good cash flow yeah. and your principal is going up. It, it, it sounds wonderful. It's a wonderful deal. I'm sure Blackstone was doing backflips not too long ago. But once home prices start to roll over a little bit and you get renters who are no longer paying their mortgages because they're losing their job, then you'll see a flood of listings. Right now, people say, well, you don't, you know, don't, you know, there's a shortage of supply. We haven't, but, but, but. How could there be a shortage of supply if one quarter of homes are held by investors? Right. It doesn't make any sense to me. And these investors, a lot of these investors own these homes at huge profits that they might want to cash out on while they still can. 
Yep. So I just want to I just want to tell you that I just want to wrap that up. That the fact that banks are banks are in big trouble. Obviously, I guess in Canada and clearly in the United States as well. Now, okay, so I want to I want to follow up on that. So they say you know there's no national housing market because it's typically housing performance is pretty geographically constrained or focused. Anyways, where would you look, Michael, for extraordinary? vulnerability in the housing market in the United States? Would you look at the markets that have been red hot for the last two, three years, like Austin, Texas and Scottsdale and, you know, these towns, or do any areas strike you as more vulnerable than others? Well, according to the Case Shiller Home Price Index, we have homes that have gone up 42% in the last two years. That's yep. the average increase. Yep. So if, if you fall, in, if, if you fall around that number or you're on the other side of that scale where you're higher than the average. Yeah. Um, right. You got, you got a long way to fall because don't forget, Jay, the home price affordability is the lowest it's ever been because the home price to income ratio is the highest that it's ever been. Yeah. The only way you can reconcile that is you have a, you know, a boom in earnings. Something's got to correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't see how you're going to have a, a boom in income you know, that picture is going to be reconciled mostly that ratio is going to reconcile mostly by having home prices fall. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the sun, you mentioned the sunbelt. I mean, uh, unfortunately I, I own a house in the sunbelt. So okay. um, I, I'll, I'll be, I'm, I've already, I've already lost 10% on the home that I purchased um, in July of 2022, already down 10% comps from the comps that I see. Okay. Yeah. Didn't hear much talk yeah. about that, but that's in my neighborhood in Naples, Florida. That's that's what I see. Yeah, I, I got it. I mean, we were looking in Phoenix uh, five years ago and um, ended up buying something up here instead. But as soon as I pulled the trigger on the house that I bought here, friends of mine started sending me listings from Phoenix showing me what I could have bought for the same dollar figure. And it was like, you know, I'd be living like a friggin' uh, chic, man. It was amazing. But, you know, you look at those same houses today and they're up like three or four times, you know, and, and, uh, they're just, yeah, that, that's a crazy market. Uh, what's your take on commercial real estate right now, Michael? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's the same, the same horrible dynamics that are in effect for residential real estate are in place for commercial real estate, but you add into the fact of vacancies. Now you had this multi-billion dollar we work yeah. uh, uh, company filed for bankruptcy. Um, I don't believe that those and and they own. I think they owned like some, you know, two million square feet. I don't have the exact number, but it's not maybe many more than two million. But it's a a huge multi million square foot number that they own worldwide. This is a worldwide company, but it's yeah. emblematic of the fact that the labor market is starting to crack, and I think the vacancy rate already is high and rising, and that's going to get much worse. That's a that vacancy rate that's so high is emblematic of the interest rate dynamics we see already happening. It is not yet a factor of the labor market starting to shed jobs. When that happens, it's lights out. And I think mm. you're going to see a lot of a lot of realization. I mean, the extend and pretend with these mark-to-market commercial mortgage-backed securities, that phenomenon is going to end. Once you start marking, once, once you have to start marking the value, these assets down, it's going to be another, it's going to be an echo of what happened in 2008. Is, is this one different in the sense that the United States as a global empire is in a more vulnerable spot today? Like you look at, 
you know, all these sort of local macro factors that we've discussed, you think about the $2 trillion debt, sorry, the $2 trillion deficit, the $32 trillion debt. And you look 34. at the global, 34, 34. Yeah. Globally uh, rising competition externally, uh, internal civil unrest that's getting kind of nuts and probably still heating up as we head towards the election. There's a lot of symptoms that, you know, individuals would say, these are the sunset years of an empire. This is what happens every single time. This is what happened in Portuguese empire, Spanish empire, Dutch, Britain. And now we're watching this play out in the United States. Do you find substance in that forecast? Or do you think this is part of a normal washing out of a bull market um, process? And and uh, what's your take there, Michael? It's not just my take. Just ask Moody's. So just lower the, the credit rating of the United States outlook down to negative. Um, yeah. Listen, um, the reason why they did that is because our deficits, as you said, they're going to be, they're already $2 trillion. Um, and what happens when you have a recession? Deficits usually rise by 200%. So you, you, could, you could easily have a $6 trillion deficit as the revenue to the country evaporates, as it always does, and the automatic stabilizers kick in. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, what happens in an empire, all empires that have cratered before have many similarities, but the main similarity they have is that the middle class is eviscerated. So yeah. there's the the oligarchs that they have the the leaders um, in the in the in a nation you know small top tier and then you have a tremendous amount of people in poverty and there's nothing in the middle and when there's when when that middle class gets eviscerated that's when you see revolutions and I and I hope and pray that, that that's not the case but the very the very entity that claims they care the most about the poor and the middle class is the one responsible for destroying it. And, and when you destroy the value, the purchasing power of money, um, an inexorable attack on its purchasing power, you destroy the living standards of the middle class. And that's exactly what's, what's occurred today. So talk to me about your portfolio right now. Where are you playing defense and where are you playing offense? So as I mentioned at the top of the interview, I'm playing mostly defense right now um i have been doing so steadily since the end of 2021 um what we have now is we, we have maintained a long position in us dollar meaning that the us dollar is gaining ground or at least it was for the last two years against the euro and the yen that's the dollar index yep. mostly the euro and the yen that is not a comment to say that the us dollar is not getting decimated as measured against the other pairs, such as against gold or against real estate or against even cryptocurrencies, uh, which I don't invest in too, by the way. Um, but yes, the US dollar is in trouble, but not against the the horrific Euro and the yen. So yes. I, have, I, have a, I have a position, a very good position in the US dollar. I'm looking to sell that as the economic data in the United States. Uh, decelerates to match that of Europe and Japan, and that's going to happen in 2024. So it's I'm, I'm at the tail end of that trade. Okay. Um, the other thing I've been I have, I have physical gold, which has done you know uh, well for us. Um, I also have uh, a short and high yield. I have an anti-beta ETF that I used. I have been long aerospace and defense. 
that's a that summarizes the portfolio as of this recording. What I plan to do is um, oh, I'm sorry. The the largest part of the portfolio, by far, is short term is short duration short term U.S. T bills. By far, the largest part of the um, of the portfolio. So I'm spinning off a tremendous amount of income into the portfolio every month. What I plan to do, my next step, and I have a 20-point model that tells me when to do this, and thank God it's kept me from making some really critical errors, like getting net short in the portfolio too early. It's a critical mistake. You don't want to get net short the portfolio until the stock market's ready to crumble. I, you don't want to do it too late, but you don't want to do it too early either. So that's that's the essence and the robust quality of this model that I've created after 32 years in the business, going on 33 now, it's taken me decades to perfect this model. So I am waiting for, for the labor market uh, weakness to intensify. I'm waiting for a certain trigger point in credit market spreads. Uh, and I'm, work, I'm looking for financial conditions to tighten to a certain extent before I then enter into a net short position and Climb on board what I've, the moniker I've given, the four horsemen of the economic apocalypse, which I mentioned to you is cash, short-term treasuries, the dollar, and the and, and straight shorts into the portfolio. In other words, I will go long ETFs that profit, that go up in value when the market goes down. That's the strategy. That's the, that that's that's where I am now. You mentioned the portfolio. I mentioned where the portfolio is now, but I'm letting you know where I'm heading at the appropriate time. I have a full and fully intend to be riding the four horsemen sometime in early 2024. That first quarter is where I'm, that's my target as of now. Okay. What are your thoughts on the commodity sector? Uh, well, so there is no commodity sector in, in the mind of Pento portfolio strategies. There's, uh, there's precious metals and there's base metals and energy. So I, there's, there's two, two different, um, categories i wouldn't conflate the two so um in a recession depression uh disinflation deflationary environment you would get out of base metals and energy you'd be short those things they always get destroyed when the r squared the correlation goes to one in um that environment however gold is money it's it's a currency and it has a different volatility uh dynamics than say um you know copper or oil yeah so uh so i i i separate the two um i do i definitely want to own um gold and you can add in on occasion silver and, and platinum in there too uh but that has to be when the uh re the level of real interest rates is falling so if if nominal rates have topped out and i think we're no longer in a sharp deflationary environment um that's the time you want to really lever up on on gold you know i take it all the way to 20 percent in the portfolio i'm not there yet but i plan on i plan on, i plan on getting there um with the caveat though and i and i alluded to this so if you look at the, the direction of real interest rates uh real interest rates are rising in a deflationary collapse of the economy and that's why you see at times you'll see gold is just used as a liquidity uh, uh, assets. You just dump it 
because you yeah. want you have to wait. What do you need? Everybody needs one thing. They need dollars. They need cash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so they dump everything they can. So outside of that, once nominal rates top out, gold is, a, is an excellent est, uh, investment. And uh, so I'm looking to increase that until we reach that liquidity event. And then on the other side of that liquidity event, that's why I think the, the that's why I think gold is going to be uh, going to all time record highs. Um, because what you'll see then is you'll see a, a, a never ending regime of interest rate repression. In other okay. words, the only the only way that the U.S. government can maintain any semblance of so, of of, of uh, solvency is to have the central bank print money to buy bonds, just like the Bank of Japan is doing, to keep nominal rates from rising. And when you have nominal rates cap and inflation is rising, what happens to real interest rates? Well, they plunge, which is the absolute sweet spot for, for physical gold and even the miners at that point. So uh, that's what I'm looking out for in 2024. Okay. And in that scenario, I mean, 20%, <clears throat> but you you also, would you look at like a GDXJ? Would you look at... Uh, equities as well. How do you play yeah, that? Yeah, I, I said the, as I said, the miners. Th that's yeah. when the miners really come. Miners are just a leverage play on gold, yeah. much higher volatility uh, dynamics than than the actual, you know, physical gold. So um, okay. you got very, you very, got to be very careful because there are times, and you'll see this happen before us. How I rigor, rigorously back tested my portfolio and you just come up with some ideas of what to own um, when the stock market goes down and create is in cratering in a in a as it evolves into a liquidity event, you'll see the people, you know, gold miners are stocks yeah. <laughs> and they, get so and they get sold. Everything. Yeah, absolutely. Every, everything gets slushed down the toilet uh, and they get hurt badly where physical gold will hold up much better in mm. that environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to say, I want before, before I, I, I don't want to forget this one thing. We have a, let, we have a massive valuation uh, problem. I call it a triumvirate of bubbles. So you you had the the mother of all bubbles in bonds. Uh, you had and you have a massive equity market bubble, and you have a real estate bubble, all existing concurrently. That has never Jay. That has never happened before. When you you know in, in global financial crisis, you primarily had a housing market bubble. You didn't you didn't really have an equity market bubble. I mean, the total market cap of equities was one hundred percent of GDP back in in two thousand and seven. Okay. Um, it's 160%. Sure. So uh, you have an equity, a massive, in fact, that 160% total market cap of equity to GDP ratio is the highest ratio that ever existed prior to 2020. Think about that. I mean, it, it blows away where it was even in March of, two, uh, of 2000. Uh, like I mentioned, 17 trillion of negative yielding bonds in the world and the highest, the most unaffordable housing market index we've ever seen. So all three bubbles exist together. And the S&P 500 is trading at 18 and a half uh, forward P.E. ratio. That that's a, Jay, that assumes if you listen to the Wall Street geniuses, that's a, that's assuming that we're going to have a 12 percent growth rate in earnings in 2024. Now, real GDP is supposed to be 2% growth in 2024. So I don't know, it, it, it's just, there's gonna be a shock in 2024. Now, it's over 18 and a half times 
the 12% that's projected in 2024, we're already trading at that number. So we have a, 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 a limited upside and a massive downside to equities because there's no way with 2% real GDP, probably 4% nominal, somewhere around there. And you see that earnings tend to grow around nominal GDP. It isn't going to be 4%. Uh, it's not going to be 12% growth. It's going to be closer to 4%. And I don't even think it's going to be 4% because if we have a recession, it's going to be minus 12%, not plus 12%. <laughs> it could be even worse than that. So there is a there's a valuation trap for those that believe that the Fed has solved the problem. Inflation has come down to 2%. It hasn't. It's going to stay at 2%. It will not. And that the economy is just you know, galloping off to the rakers, races. It is a virtually 0% chance of that happening. Okay. Look, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on today and uh, walking me through your thesis and how you're parking capital accordingly. I like how the portfolio looks right now. You're sort of ready to be aggressive, right? Uh, super heavyweight, short duration, UST bills coming to the end of your long US dollar trade. Um, physical, a lot of my audience holds physical and I hold it as an option on liquidity, which is to say that if I have to option that, I do, right? Okay, that's what it's there for, right? It's the inconvenient savings. It takes a couple steps to liquidate, but it's as a consequence, it's there. Um, and uh, long aerospace and defense, which is very interesting. Uh, and I'm not surprised by that, but uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not happy about it. I get it. Uh, yeah. But listen, when you talk about liquidity, Jay, the, the liquidity in the treasury market, which is what I find most frightening here, because we just don't have the buyers any longer. We don't have Japan's interest. We don't have China's interest. We don't have the Fed's interest in buying. Um, we don't have any, any real impetus from. Uh, getting long a position in rapid disinflation or deflation, that's not out there in the market yet. You yeah. need that. You'll need that bid will come into duration treasuries, but it's going to come at the expense of stocks. I mean, people will be panicking out of stocks in preparation of the manifest manifestation of the recession and hiding in, in long duration bonds. I plan on moving my T-bills out to the middle, you know, the belly of the yield curve. But I'm not going to go out too far because think about it. Who's going to buy? <laughs> you think about you know, the trillions of dollars that's going to have to be pushed onto the stock market to, to the uh to the bond market investors at the other on the other side of this next recession. And 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 if the and if I'm correct, and if the Fed has to buy this debt, and I think they will be, because otherwise you're gonna have rates going well into double digits. Um, what message do you think, Jay, that's gonna send? to the investors because you had 9% inflation in 2022. The Fed decided to fight the inflation by providing a real interest rate. In other words, a, a real Fed funds rate, 2% above inflation is where it is right now. That's going to fail and cause asset prices to crater. And if the Fed goes back into QE and ZERP, the Fed will at least tacitly, and I think they'll be screaming it you know, in uh, no uncertain terms, that they can never adequately fight inflation without causing the economy to collapse, asset yep. bubbles to crater. And that means that inflation isn't going to stop at 9%. Why would it? How, how could it? Because the only, the only buyer we have for our treasuries 
is going to, in a normal economy, is going to be our central bank. Unless, of course, investors buy, are buying treasuries because of the collapse of the economy. So it's the, illiqu it's the illiquidity in the treasury market, which we already see, and it's nothing yet because the reverse repo facility will probably hit zero. This is where the banks parked all their excess reserves. So as the Fed's doing QT, I mean, they're taking money out of the financial system, but they're adding it back in through the reverse repo system as that's being used to buy treasuries. That runs dry in March, according to my calculations. Okay. Then all, even though it's illiquid right now, we'll just wait until March. Hmm. And that's, that's where you're going to see like, you know, yes, yesterday, this interview is being recorded on Wednesday. So yesterday, you know, you see um, interest rates plunge uh, by, you know, 20 basis points in a day. And now that, you know, they go back up 15 basis points the next day. That's not the way the U.S. Treasury market is supposed to operate. It doesn't. It's In other words, I think in March it's going to become dysfunctional and chaotic like we've never seen before. Mm. So watch out for that. Okay. And anything, I mean absent some kind of productivity boom that would mm. be it i mean on the back of i don't know what maybe some ai i know you go to ai ai yeah of course of course yeah i'll do my dan i can do my dan ives and appreciate ai well anyway <laughs> um listen if you have a productivity boom that's led by ai it's a possibility. I don't know. I'm not that I'm not that smart to understand that yet. If it's going to be a productivity boom that occurs within 12 months. Yeah. Um, but if it does, it, by definition, that means you're going to lay off millions of employees. Because of the and efficiencies it, of workflow? Because of, the, because of the efficiencies that come along with that productivity. Yeah. And and that can't be good news for the economy or the stock market in the short term. No, oh, the middle class in general. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there'll be yeah. a few winners, many, many losers. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. At least in the short term, correct. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Look, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on today. Where can people find more of you? They want to find out more of what you're up to, your your services, et cetera. Where should we send them? So it's um pentoport.com is the website. Uh on that website, you'll find the midweek reality check, which which I produce every Wednesday. In fact, I have to hustle out of here soon and then record it. Yep. Um, it's, uh, it just gives you the salient information that I've, uh, uncovered during the week that you should know as an investor, unbiased, uh, unbiased. I'm not a perma bear. I'm not a perma bull. I just want to get it right. I want to get the direction of inflation and growth. Correct. So I unearth all of that arcane, um, reality every Wednesday and, um, that is a $50 a year purchase if you'd like it. Uh, but there's a fee, a you know, a five week free trial. If you have a hundred thousand dollars to invest and you're a U.S. citizen, I will directly manage your money under the rubric of Charles Schwab and in Pento Portfolio Strategy. So okay. contact me. It's um, 732-772-9500 is the office number. And my email address is mpento at pentoport.com. Okay. Awesome. And the, uh, the weekly reality check is like a super simple 10 minute soundbite, your download, what you've been paying attention to, uh, very convenient, highly consumable and great by the way. So 50 bucks a year Thank is you. a great no brainer. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate being on with you again. 
If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.